0: Romans chapter 8, this morning we're going to be in verses, uh, verses 30, I think it's verses 35 through 39, and again, just uh, remember what Paul is describing here is the benefits of those that are in Christ, and we'll go over these kind of quickly because we should already have a good solid foundation uh, for where we have been. Uh, Paul says, first and foremost, for those in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation. Then he says there's liberation, we've been set free. From the principle or law of sin and death to live by the law or the principle of the life in the spirit. Then he says in Christ there's regeneration, there's a change in our life. In Christ we're under a new obligation, not to the flesh but to live according to the spirit. In Christ, there's this new relation. We're no longer slaves of fear, but we're now the sons of God. In Christ, there's this eager expectation that while we still live in the midst of of pain and suffering, we look forward to that blessed hope, that hope of Jesus Christ when he comes back. In Christ, there's also this cooperation with the Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He kind of lifts the other end of the load to help us in this life. Then we said in Christ, there's this realization that God is at work in all things of our lives, and he is causing all things to work together for good to them who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Then we said in Christ there's salvation. In other words, we are chosen, we're called, we're justified, we're glorified. And then last week we said in Christ there's this affirmation. In other words, there's this statement uh, that relieves all doubt. And that is simply this, that God is for us. He's providing for us. God has pardoned us. And Jesus Christ is right now praying for us. And so now Paul is going to ask a Another rhetorical question. Now, we've seen this already in these uh, previous verses. And when I'm talking about a rhetorical question, it's simply this. A rhetorical question is asked not because the person desires to get some information, but he wants to drive home a point, okay? He wants to make a statement or or, kind of get you thinking about what he is actually asking, okay? And so he's asking these questions to persuade you, to convince you. So in other words, he said, who can be against us? If God's for us, who can be against us? Understand that. It doesn't matter who's against us if God is for us. Also, he says, if God is for us, Who's going to bring up charges against God's elect? Because God is the one that justifies us. Who is he that condemns us? And so these questions he's asking, it's not because Paul is seeking information, but he wants his readers to understand he's trying to drive home a point of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And in verse 35, he's going to ask another rhetorical question. Let's let's read verses 35 through 39. And look what he says here. He asks a question again. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Will distress? Will persecution? Will famine? Will nakedness? Will peril? Will sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, We are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Then he says in verse 38, For I am convinced, or persuaded, your translation may say, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the final uh, benefit that Paul gives us in chapter 8 is, if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no separation from God's love. Is there any force, is there any person that can come between a child of God and Jesus Christ? Now Paul lists here in verse 35 some possible things that a Christian might go through in life and probably will, at some form or some fashion in their life, go through these things. The things he lists is this. He says, if we go through tribulation, does that mean that God no longer loves us? In other words, that word tribulation means trouble that is pressing on someone from without. When we are facing tribulation, does that mean that God no longer loves us? And then he says, what about distress? Distress simply means this. It's anguish or discomfort from within. When we are stressed, anybody ever been stressed? Does that mean because we are stressed that God no longer loves us what about persecution that means to put to flight with acts of hostility if God's children face persecution can we assume at that time that well God must no longer love me what about famine if we go through famine does that mean that God has Taken his love away from his children listen. I understand that David said I have never seen The righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread and David never seen God's seed begging bread Now I think you can take that as a spiritual Application that Jesus Christ is the bread of life and he is sufficient for all our needs but there will be Christians That will die of starvation in this world. But if we are without food, does that mean that God no longer loves us? Or peril, which is any type of danger? Or if we are executed for our faith, does that mean that God no longer loves us? See, when you read the book of Acts chapter 12, the apostle Peter is in prison And the church goes to prayer for him. And an angel comes and delivers Peter out of prison. But you know what? When you read the very first part of Acts chapter 12, the Bible says there that James, the brother of John, was beheaded by the sword. And so does that mean that God loved Peter more than he loved James, the brother of John? Absolutely not. And so the question is this. Will any of those things in verse 35 separate us from God's love as His children? And the obvious answer is no. Now in verse 36, Paul will quote from Psalms 44 and 22. And he says this, Just as it is written... For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, if you do a little background on Psalms 44, Psalms 44 was written during a time when Israel had been defeated by their enemies. Let me read just a few verses from Forty-four. I'm reading from the Louvain translation because it's just a. It puts it in more everyday English that we use today. Start with verse thirteen. Look what the psalmist says here, verse thirteen, about their situation. He says, "You let our neighbors mock us. We are an object of scorn and derision to those around us." He says. You have made us the butt of their jokes. They shake their heads at us in scorn. We can't escape the constant humiliation. He says shame is written across our face. They were in a state of humility. They were in a state of shame. They were in a state of defeat. But what Paul is reaching back to realize and makes, wants us to realize is this, even in their state of defeat, even in their state of shame, God's love for them had not changed. Now listen, I can guarantee this. You ain't won every battle this past week. I haven't won every battle this past week. You've said some things you shouldn't have said. I ain't talking about cursing. I'm talking about you just you just said some things you cruel things to people, in a bad attitude. You may have thought some things you shouldn't have thought. You may have judged some people you shouldn't have judged. I was going to a store this past week. I, had, I, was, I just got through playing golf, okay? And so as I'm going through the store, there was a man coming out, and he looked like a homeless man. And so he stopped me. He said, hey. And I said, oh, my goodness. I don't have time for this. And I'm thinking, what am I going to say to him? Because I know he's fixing to ask me for some money. And he said, do you play golf? <laughs> and he said, I want to know what kind of clubs I should get. Now, I had prejudged him based on his looks because he was wearing flip-flops and a coat. And he looked all out of sorts. But I guess that's just the way this generation dresses. <laughs> right? You've got snow boots, shorts, shorts. And a toboggan on. You are all like you're like all-season tires, right? You are ready for anything that comes that day. But there's no doubt in my mind that this week, there's not a single one of us could stand up here and say, "I got it perfect this week." Because you may have not, you may have thought perfect this week, you may have said perfect this week, but there's things you should have done that you didn't do and when you know to do good and you don't do it James says it is sin understand that and what Paul wants us to realize is that even when you don't get it right God's love hasn't changed for you. See, we live in a world where love is based on performance. If you will do the right things, the world says we'll love you, we'll accept you. But Paul says here, and he quotes from Psalms 44 even in their state of defeat even in their state of shame god's love for them had not changed and let me tell you something god's love for his children is not based on their performance it's based on their position in christ Jesus. Listen, you parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. If you've got children and your children mess up, you don't say, Well, I don't love them anymore. There is nothing that can separate that love that you have for your son or your daughter and I will say it again if we being evil are like that toward our children how much more is our heavenly father loving us not based on our performance but just based upon the fact that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for me he called me he saved me. He justified me. And because of that He loves me and His love will never change for me. Then He says in verse 37 but in all these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, in all these things We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That word overwhelmingly conquers in the present tense. It means to be super victorious. It means to have abundant victory. It means a lopsided victory. And it's not because I'm strong enough. It's not because I'm smart enough that I'm victorious. It's simply because of Jesus Christ that I am victorious. See, my victory doesn't come from my praise. My victory comes from Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, I praise Him. Not because... You understand what I'm saying? I do not have victory in my own strength. My victory comes only through Jesus Christ. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Notice he didn't say you earned it. He said that God gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this in verse 38. He says, for I am convinced. I am persuaded. Paul had got to a settled conclusion in his life about God's love for him. Paul was certain about God's love for him. Now go with me right quick to Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17 through 19. In Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 Paul again talks about the benefits we have of being in Christ Jesus, what God has done for us. In verse 17, Paul says this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He tells us that you be rooted And grounded in love. Then verse 18 he says. That you may be able to comprehend. With all the saints. What is the breadth. And the length. And the height. And the depth. And to know the love of Christ. This is interesting because he says. I want you to know this. But he says you know what. You can't really know it. I'll try to understand this, but you can't really completely understand this. Which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the goodness of God. Now when Paul mentions here the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, he is not describing four kinds of love. He's trying to describe the vastness of God's love for his children. Now, let's talk about these right quick. He says, I want you to understand what is the breadth of God's love. In other words, we would say this, what is the extent of God's love for his children? And the answer is this, God's love is unfailing. The only thing that will never fail you is the love of God. See, in the Old Testament times, there, God, there was many names that God was called by, and one of the greatest names that God ever revealed himself to the Hebrews was the name Yahweh, or the, it was sometimes pronounced Yahweh. Jehovah. And this is the greatest name probably of given to God in the Old Testament. And it simply means this. It means the covenant God. It's found over 6800 times in the Old Testament. And what he's saying there is this that he is Jehovah, he is Yahweh, he's the God who will keep his promises. He is the God who is steadfast. He's strong. He is firm. He is the promise keeper. Think about it. And listen to how Isaiah, how God describes his love to Isaiah in Isaiah 54. He says, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. But my loving kindness will not be removed from you. Now, we probably all like going to the mountains, right? What if you got off exit 409 up there and you drove 10 minutes when you got off that hill and you came over, you looked and said, where'd the mountains go? You just know that when you go up there, you're going to see some mountains. They're going to be there. And what God wants his people to know is that my love for you will always remain. No matter what shakes in your life, no matter what changes in your life, God's love is unfailing as i said before and i said again god doesn't love you because you are good he loves you because he is good he's a good god and that's what his love is based upon the fact that god is love and so paul says i want you to understand just the vastness the extent of god's love and we could say that god's love is unfailing and then in Ephesians chapter 3, again verse 18, he talks about the length of God's love. How long does God love us? And we would say that God's love is unending. That's similar to the breath. But in Psalms 136, verse 1, the psalmist says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, sometimes read Psalms 136 because there's 36 verses in this chapter. And this phrase, His loving kindness is everlasting, appears 36 times, once for each verse, in this chapter and the psalmist wants us to know that you can count on God's love it never ends Spurgeon said it like this. It is so long that your old age can't wear it out. It's so long that your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations cannot drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. God's love for his children, it is unending. It's unending. What about the height of God's love? Can we measure how high God's love is? Because when we, naturally, when men see something tall, they want to conquer it. Mount Everest. Over 29,000 feet above sea level, people want to conquer that mountain. David said it like this in Psalms 36 and 5. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. In other words, the love of God for his children is unconquerable. Then he mentions this last one here, the depth of God's love. How deep is God's love for his children? Well, if you go through scriptures, let me just... Give you like a little tour god's love is so deep that it reached reach a man in genesis named abram who was worshiping idols wasn't even seeking after god and god called him just because he's a good god and he said abram i will bless you and i'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seas This man, Abraham, did he always have it all together? No, he didn't. There was times he would lie and say, she's my sister, not my wife. Oh, there was times he exhibited great faith, but he didn't always get it right. But yet God's love didn't depart from him. What about a man named Jacob? Just a deceiver, a liar, a cheater. God's love was deep enough to reach a deceiving Jacob where he was. What about Leah? Leah, who didn't have any sparkle, we could just say about Leah. She just wasn't a. She was kind of plain ugly. I guess you could probably say it like that. But God's love is deep enough to reach ugly people, and they ain't talking about us. I'm talking about those people down in the other church. Okay, we good-looking people over here. But God's love was deep enough to reach Leah. It was deep enough to reach Moses a man who would always make excuse after excuse, a man who was a murderer, come on now, a man who lost his temper at times and would strike the rock instead of speaking to the rock. God's love didn't depart from Moses. It was deep enough to reach a prostitute by the name of Rahab. Prostitute. It was deep enough to reach a man by the name of Gideon was always afraid, always seeking a sign. You ever read Judges 7 and 8? After that great victory, what does Gideon do? He says, I want you to bring all your gold, your rings. They melted it together. The people got back into idolatry, but yet we find Gideon in Hebrews chapter 11. It was deep enough to reach a womanizer named Samson. Even though he disobeyed his parents, when he was blinded and in that Philistine camp, he prayed to the Lord, Lord, just one more time. Just let me feel your power. And in his death, blinded and chained, he killed more men in his death than he did in his life. I'm here to tell you that the love of God was deep enough to reach a little boy named David. David, the adulterer, the murderer. David, that David, that God's love was deep enough to reach him. The love of God was deep enough to reach Isaiah, a man of unclean lips and from an unclean people. The love of God was deep enough to reach a religious man named Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night and said what must I do to be born again? It was deep enough to reach Nicodemus. The love of God was deep enough to reach an impulsive fisherman by the name of Peter who at times spoke when he should have been quiet. At times should have sat down when he stood up. At times he would be reckless but yet God's love was deep enough to reach Him, not because He was perfect, but just because He was a good God. It was good enough, deep enough to reach a worrywart by the name of Martha who was always stressed out who was always busy, she was so busy that she was neglecting time with her Savior. Does Does that speak to anybody today that we get so busy at times that we don't spend time in His Word, spend time in prayer, but yet God's love was deep enough to reach that woman. It was deep enough to reach a woman at a well who had been married five times and was living with somebody that wasn't even her husband, and He gave her living water. The love of God was deep enough to reach a woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. And he said, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. The love of God was deep enough to reach Mary Magdalene who had seven demons living inside her at one time. It was deep enough to reach this man right here that wrote Romans chapter 8 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul would say of himself that he was a murderer He was a blasphemer, he was a violent man, but the love of God was deep enough to reach him. And I'm here to tell you, no matter where you are today, you're not so deep that God's love can't reach you where you are. And if you're his child and you're running from God right now, let me tell you something. The Holy Ghost of God is always running faster than what you can run and his love is deep enough to find your children where they are, your grandchildren where they are. I'm here to tell you, you may not can count on many things in this world, but as a child of God, you can count on God's love and I am convinced... I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. You didn't earn it, you can't earn it. Then look what he says here, verse 38 and 39, again. He says, for I am convinced that neither death, now if you die, that still doesn't separate you from God's love. Jesus told that thief who was about to die, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Neither life, and what he saw out there is life with all of its uncertainties, all its burdens, all of its disappointments. Neither angels nor principalities—that is, the demonic creatures that assist Satan in his warfare against God and His children. Neither present things what's going on right now, events in my present life, neither things to come, this is any future event, neither powers, and that word means an adversary that functions with remarkable power, governments, neither height nor depth or any created thing that encompasses everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul begins this chapter, in Christ there's no condemnation and he ends it in Christ there is no separation. Now I got a question for you. What will be your response? To God's love if he loves me that much does that mean that I just simply take it for granted that I just simply do what I want to do when I want to do it again we're sensible people if you had a good relationship with your father. You're not going out trying to do things to damage him. You're not seeing what you can do to take advantage of that. Listen, I love my father very much. I don't want to let him down. I don't want to hurt him. Now, have I ever let him down? Yeah, I probably have. Have I ever heard him? Yeah, it wasn't intentional. But when I let him down, did he say, you ain't my son anymore. Get out of here. No, he didn't. And when you understand just how much he loves you, you're not trying to go do anything you want to do that's going to break his heart. When you understand his love, if that's your attitude, I'm going to say it again, you need to check yourself and see if you're really in Christ. Because when I hurt him, I get convicted. I feel miserable. Let me read it. Three more scriptures, okay? What is our response to God's love? I ask that question. Now, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul moves his focus away from the Gentiles to the nation of Israel. And he begins to talk about God's plan for them, okay? But then he... Circles back around, I believe, in chapter 12, verse 1, and he gives this statement, therefore. In other words, this is, what is, what's it there for? Because I believe that goes back to Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, 11. What God has done for us. Therefore, because God has done this for us, he says, I urge you, brethren, to, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service or reasonable act of worship. And so when I look at the cross, I could never repay the Lord back for what he's done for me. I could never begin to do that. But because of what he has done for me, I want to live for him. I want to do what he's called me to do. I want to please him and not myself. And Paul would say it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. He says, for the love of Christ is what controls us. In other words, it was the love of Christ Jesus that kept Paul going in spite of the dangers, toils, and snares in his life. It was the love of Christ that Christ had shown toward him that kept him going in spite of being stoned, in spite of being shipwrecked. It was the love of Christ that kept Paul presenting his body a living sacrifice, saying no to the things that his flesh wanted to do. And yes, the things that his flesh didn't want to do. He says, it was God's love for me that was like a governor in my life that helped me live the way I was supposed to live. And he says, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And in verse 15... And he died for all. Listen to what he says here. She's coming and playing. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. See, Romans 8 is good news. I know some of you are saying it's too good to be true. But when you understand this, you understand it's not a license to live how you want to live, but but it compels you to say, you know what, I want to live for him. I want to live a life pleasing unto him. I want to get into his word. I want to live, I want to love my neighbor as I love myself. I want to love, I want to seek him first in his kingdom. I want to be a servant in the Lord's house. I don't want to just take this for granted. I want to live for him. And when you realize there's nothing that can separate you from God's love, how can you not just fall down on your knees and just cry out thank you thank you Lord Jesus for what you've done for me thank you Lord for everything I didn't deserve it you don't deserve it that's what makes it so great if you could earn it then you could come in here with your chest stuck out saying look what I've done this week But when we come into his house, we just say, look what he has done for us. Look what he's done for us. So my question is this, this morning. What is your response to God's love for you? Are you living for him? Are you trying to live the way he has called us to live? Because if you're not, I don't think you really understand. Every nail was your nail. That crown of thorns was your thorns. Every stripe on his back was your stripe. And he suffered all of that for you, for me. And the least I can do, not to earn His love because I can't earn it. Not to earn, I can't earn salvation. It's by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. But when I see this and when I remember this, what He has done for me, how can I not live for Him and do what He has called me to do? Can we stand?